Welcome to the Ingenious Podcast, a snapshot of future B2B marketing trends and use it now tips. Learn to be wildly effective in professional services. Each episode features experts with new ideas for your branding and competitive success. Welcome to the Ingenuity Masters Series, a conversation with influencers and professional services marketing. I'm Don Wagoner and will be your host of the series. Listen in about these influencers as they share personal thoughts on trends, opportunities, and the realities of getting a seat at the table. Have your own ingenious thoughts or questions? Visit us at ingenuitymarketing.com. Our Kiesel of Kiesel Consulting is based in Wisconsin but he's always on the go. Dozens of firms across the country count on Art's perspective annually to shape their top objectives and strategies, driving stronger performance for the firm. Art was named among the top 100 most influential people in public accounting by Accounting Today, and he is the former secretary for the National Association for Accounting Marketing. He's here with us today to talk about barriers to firm growth, the role of people versus technology, and also what he's cooking in his kitchen. Welcome to the Ingenious Podcast, Art. Thank you, Dawn. It's great to be here. You do a lot of presenting and training around the country. Are you noticing any changes around how attendees are preferring to learn just due to time and cost constraints, or perhaps their preferences for DIY or quick takeaways? Great question, Dawn. The big focus now is really on participant engagement. For example, what can we be doing as presenters to make our learning stickier? Um, while it's easier in a live program to gauge engagement uh, because of how people are participating and, and joining in in the discussion, it's much harder in a virtual environment. Uh, and with all the distractions that participants face during training today, whether it's live or virtual, uh, that real focus on learning engagement has been something that I've seen um, on the uh, uh, on the high priority list for, for the last two years or so. So are you adjusting your approach to consulting and training at all then? Yes. The um, addition of some learning and development professionals into the public accounting firms that I work with have really helped to uh, focus the training and focus the engagement aspects of uh, the programs that I bring. So we're really focused on the different styles of learning that those participants bring to the table and making sure to design programs that hit on those primary different areas that perhaps weren't of primary focus in the past. So uh, it is actually, uh, in fact, in definitely affecting some of the programs that I'm bringing to the table. And I'm sure it makes it much more fun. I'm not sure if you know this, but I actually have a master's degree in adult learning. And years ago when I was doing training, I don't do nearly much of it anymore. But, it, you know, just doing, like, different types of exercises and, you know, whether it was pair shares or how the room was set up or all different types of those, um, those you know, exercises throughout the training it was so new. I mean, usually it was just straight lecture. And so then it was just so much more fun when Ingenuity would come in and do those trainings. And now it just seems like a standard. Right, right. You know, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that uh, people expect to be entertained to some degree. 
Um, and, you know, an effective teacher is going to have some aspect of entertainment. And um, along with that comes small breakout groups and individual work and group discussions. And so it has become a little bit more complex, but at the same time, one could say it's become a little bit more fun, too. Yeah, I agree. And actually, I think it makes it a little bit more easier for the presenter, too, because, oh, we'll just do a small group exercise. And I think people enjoy learning much more from each other than just listening from one person. I totally agree. <laughs> All right. So what is your take on some of the biggest concerns of accounting leaders today? And then, of course, how are your clients addressing some of these concerns right now? Sure. You know, it's no surprise that succession planning is a top concern in the profession today. Uh, so many firms just struggle with uh, developing a great bench of future partners who can, you know, facilitate an internal buyout. But what, you know, surprises me about that problem is it's, it's really rooted in training and learning and development and doing a better job of pulling your part, your future partners up. Um, and so, uh, when I go into firms and I learn about the fact that they don't really have a formal path to partner or they don't have special development programs that they're bringing to their future partners, um, it's, um, it's, a, it's a little surprising to me that given how long succession planning has been a top concern, that that hasn't um, really proliferated throughout the firms. And, you know, what I see is that those firms that are doing a good job of it are bringing non-technical training into the fold. Um, and this is a great channel to build uh, the pipeline of future partners and leaders. And um, I think it's a great um, channel to build better professionals. Uh, and uh, so training your people in non-technical areas, uh, whether that's leadership or how to uh, be a better team member or work better with clients or business development is definitely gonna create a stronger population of future leaders for the firm. Now, years ago, I actually worked at a firm where they actually had a path to partner and what it took to get there, but I see it very seldom as well. Is that something that you actually create and help firms do? I've helped firms do that. Most of the time, though, my role is in coaching those participants. Okay. Uh, my focus and area is, uh, my focus, primary focus is business development, training, and coaching. And so uh, where we've identified a candidate who's in the pipeline to become a partner and business development is kind of one of their weak spots or undeveloped areas, that's where I'll get involved. But in terms of identifying the framework, you know as well as I do, that you know they've got the technical training program down pretty pretty well and now we just need to kind of round that out so you can develop really strong future leaders okay what are the biggest barriers to growth right now in accounting in your opinion well firms are growing at an average of about five to six percent organic growth per year and those firms are going to say almost in unison that that's a challenge to manage. And they're going to tell me that because they have a hard time getting that much more work out the door. Um, and, you know, based upon their, their, their staffing constraints and their resource constraints. And um, some of those firms that are doing the average amount of growth are also 
uh, the ones that may question or even wince at the opportunity to bring in a new client for fear that they won't be able to service that client that they want. Um, and so that's kind of the perspective I see from the firms that are growing at an average at an average rate. But when I get the opportunity to meet a firm that's doing twice the average organic growth, you know, maybe 10, 12 percent, um, they, they have adopted the mindset that they're not going to let resources hold them back. They are not going to let that fear of not being able to serve that client um, prevent them from going after that whale or that big fish. And, you know, growth is a mindset. So at the end of the day, the, the firms that have the more aggressive growth goals, you know, are the ones that have that, that mindset that says we're not going to allow an operational challenge like staffing to get in the way of achieving that goal. And what does that mean? They work harder at it and they do a better job of innovating and bringing, you know, better delivery as they're continuing to grow their firm. Yeah, I completely agree. Or they have the process and processes in place where they will succeed, whether it's um, a client experience um, process and to serve the clients well so that they're growing the services or um, they have a really great culture and the recruiting and retention is working really well. Something where it's, it's just where that growth then will sustain and or those other processes will help that growth help, you know, be more successful. Sure. Um, it's an, you know, it's an architecture um, and, you know, growth is one of, one of the pillars, uh, growth and new clients is one of those pillars, but you can't have that alone. You've got to have other support beams. And uh, when I sit down with prospective clients and say, okay, you want to do a business development training program because you want to see if you can ignite growth. Well, I say, be prepared to rev up your recruiting engine, you know, be prepared to rev up your uh, retention and incentives engine. Um, and just don't be surprised if, in fact, this does take off and you find yourself behind when it comes to staffing, when it comes to people policies and things like that. You need to get out in front of that, just like you are saying, all right, let's see if we can reignite growth at this firm. Um, a, a client that I worked with last year um, and saw some significant growth. They had a lot more people participating in the growth discussion a lot more people going out and getting new business. And last year, they brought more six-figure accounts to the firm than they had ever brought um, in the previous you know, several years. And they started to struggle with staffing. And yeah. I said, well, you know, I, I said, you know, I, I told you this was going to happen. And they said, we know we're going to hire a strategic human resource person to really beef up our recruiting and our retention um, and, you know, put some of those other places in some of those other pillars in, in place to um, to support the growth that's coming in the door. I'm sure they loved it when you said, I told you so. <laughs> oh, I don't get to say it that often, but when I do, I usually <laughs> not that about it. <laughs> All right. So what do you think um, the biggest opportunities are right now in accounting? What I see versus what I think is probably a little bit different. So let me start with what I see. Uh, opportunities to manage and deal with growth are starting 
to form in the way of doing a much better job of firing bad clients, okay? So I've heard that conversation more in the last two years than I've heard my entire career, is we think we need to start firing the clients. So they're giving that some lip service, they're giving that some attention. Um, so it is to uh, you know, kind of strengthen their ability to deliver to the better clients is by getting rid of some of the weak clients. Um, another thing that I see is firms starting to take some baby steps into outsourcing and leveraging technology to increase workflows and better streamline their, um, you know, their service delivery models. And it's not a full-on adoption, you know, all hands on deck kind of an approach. It's like a pinky approach, okay? And um, so, you know, they're trying for the first time, they're trying some of these outsourcing platforms, whether it's onshore or offshore. They're trying, you know, new, more interns. They're doubling their ranks of interns and they're giving them more responsibility. Um, or they are increasing their higher, their lateral hires, uh, even though they've not had the greatest success with laterals in the past. So I see some inertia toward a mindset of change and that what we've always done is not working and can't continue to work, especially if we're going to put new numbers on the board. What do I think is going to happen? Is the typical large local firm going to have a full-on adoption of technology and automation tools? No, I don't think that that market has, is mature enough yet for that. But I think incremental steps every year are gonna to continue to occur. More and more firms are gonna find ways to, to pull more through the pipeline during tax and audit season. Um, and um, that is gonna yield over many years some good progress. Yeah, baby steps. I definitely agree with you. And it's usually like one or two partners that are really about change, but then there's other partners that are not. And that's kind of what the challenge is, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's a mixed bag at every firm. I mean, you're going to have, um, you know, the new partner in their, you know, late 30s or early 40s who has not yet found a voice in the partner group and so isn't going to be, um, you know, vocal or even disruptive, you know, then you have the people, you know, at the other end. They're a few years from retirement um, and they've got the loudest voice. Maybe they have the, the biggest amount of ownership and, you know, they're going to have a different perspective on, on, on things too. So um, I think, you know, getting partner groups together and aligned about the mission of their firm and, and the vision is, is going to go a long way in, in terms of challenging and transforming the model of public accounting. Yeah. The art of persuasion. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about people power versus automation power. Where do you see the sweet spot for the next two years, just based on the growth plans you create for firms? In other words, where should people be emphasized and where should tech be optimized? Good one. Um, you know, haven't really thought about that. That's not something that, you know, is in my, uh, as I fall asleep every night, doesn't pop up to my mind. Like, oh, I forgot to turn off the oven does. But uh, let's see if I can, if I can uh, attack it as best I could. Um, you know, for the, for the time being, you know, I would say for the next couple of years, I, I think the typical large local firm and most firms are going to rely 
more heavily on people power than they are on automation power. Um, why do I say that? Just the sophistication level of the typical 75 or 100 person firm just doesn't lend itself to having a really strong technology leader who can evaluate tools, bring them to the practice leaders and say, hey, if we implement this, we're gonna reduce hours on each audit by 5%, okay? Um, and so that, again, kind of paints a picture of they just don't have the person who can, who can sink their teeth into a project like that. And, and it is a big project to evaluate some of these tools and then try to align them with the clients that we have. However, if during the strategic planning process, the firm says, well, given the last couple of years of our growth, given the last couple of years of the increased employee costs and the increase in technology costs that we're facing, uh, we need to find a way to reduce hours on jobs. And maybe we say, we gotta try to hit 10% hourly reduction year over year for the next two years. And that's gonna be critical to us maintaining profitability. If that is the case, what are we gonna do about it? And when you look at it from a perspective like that, it's got a little bit more teeth to it. It's got a little bit more inertia. And so if you can find a champion who can lead an initiative like that, be held accountable and deploy resources and technology within the firm, I think you have a much greater uh, chance of seeing success on something like that. Um, but you know, like I mentioned, the automation tools available to the typical firm today are still a little bit limited. And so it might be a few years before we see something come into the profession that's at a price point that most firms can afford it and at the same time uh, delivers the impact that we're really looking for. Right. So you probably enjoy breakthrough moments with your clients when they finally see their path clearly or they experience success. Can you share one of those moments? I get to experience those moments a few times a year. And uh, they are very, you know, when I, when I have one of those moments, I'm really tempted to close my computer and wrap it up to the day because there's no, you know, I, I've achieved something that's, you know, at the peak and whatever I do for the rest of the day will be a disappointment. Um, but for me, uh, personally, when I get a call or get a message from someone that I've trained or coached personally that they brought in their first new client or they brought in their first corporate account, um, or they got their first really strong referral, or they spoke in front of a group the first time and it went really well. Those are the moments for me. Um, that's really why I'm in this business. And so uh, when, when somebody takes what I taught them and, and absorbed it and applied themselves, which most of them can, you know, just some of them don't, that's when I get, <laughs> that's when I get the most juice uh, from, from what I do. Yeah, I completely agree. I've given some sales coaching before, and when they actually say, wow, it, actually what you told me to say worked, I'm so amazed. <laughs> it just, it's right. so exciting. It's like, wow, okay, great. You actually took what I was teaching you or coaching you to do, which is so exciting in the first place. Because <laughs> yeah. you're right, yeah, they do right. have a lot on their plate. <laughs> right. It was late last year, I got an email from somebody who had been part of one of my business development training programs. And she sent me, you know, about a one, a full page email. And, you know, the second paragraph began with, you really changed my life. 
You gave me the confidence to go out there and get new business. You gave me the confidence to go out there and start my own firm. And, you know, that was a Monday. I didn't work the rest of that week. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only kidding partially, of course. Uh, but those are the kinds of things that, you know, you get very rarely, you get those um, moments of, of true appreciation. And, you know, it gets, it gets you, keeps you energized and motivated through some of the tough stuff that you have to deal with on a daily, weekly basis. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So let's switch gears a bit. You often work in the areas of growth strategy and developing great leaders. Where does marketing strategy in a firm best support those aims? Well, I guess there's a, a kind of a, a multi-faceted you know, response to that. Um, do I believe that a fast-growing firm has the opportunity to develop more leaders? Absolutely. Um, when you have growth initiative, you have growth goals, and you have people focused on those, you're going to create more paths and you're going to create more options and more opportunities for people, whether it is to work on new challenging clients or to leap into a leadership role sooner than they otherwise would by the fact that you're expanding your client base. Um, those kind of things really kind of, kind of fit together. So when, um, you know, when I, I look at maybe the pedigree of a, of a, of a quality, of a high quality successful partner today, I see business development on that resume, um, and it doesn't come in the same shape for each person. Business development is a very personal thing. The way that people approach business development is very unique on a per-person basis. But as long as someone can find a way that they can contribute to BD, they will set themselves up to be a very successful leader and a very successful partner in their firm someday. So it is just an ingredient to success, a growth mindset, the ability to execute on business development. Um, and I'm talking about, you know, for the vast majority of firms out there. Uh, the vast majority of firms that I've had the pleasure of working with will tell me that they require anyone who wants to be a new partner to build a small book of business to prove that they can do it. Um, not only to prove that they can get new clients, but that they can maintain an existing book that has been given to them by another partner. So um, I think I see those two things coming really close in terms of being a great leader and being able to be effective at some kind of business development. Yeah, I agree. And I do agree that most people can contribute to business development in lots of different ways as well. And I do also believe that you can be trained to do that, to do marketing and do business development. You just have to be willing to learn it and take the risk to do it which is not always easy. (laughs) Yes, you got that right. So it's been great talking to you as an industry influencer. Who are your influencers? Well, I've been, you know, very lucky to be able to spend a lot of time with uh, Mark Rosenberg and Alan Colton um, over the past uh, 10 years or so and would definitely uh, mark them as uh, somebody that has influenced me and influenced my um, profession, but ultimately, you know, beyond that, the fact that you know I I you know, worked for Alan and I collaborate with Mark an extensive amount. There are so many great influential people in our profession, and it is a noble profession, and it is a profession of lifelong learning. Um, and it's very rare that I come upon somebody with, who's in the profession from which I don't learn something 
and I'm not influenced in some way. I mean, especially if you look at the, you know, the top 100 list, you know, it would be my goal to have the opportunity to meet every single one of the people that are on the top 100 most influential list. Um, and every year I try to, to add at least one person to the, to the list of people that I've met off that list because there's just so much to learn. Um, and, you know, if there's 100 people on that list, there's 100 different perspectives, 100 different uh, influence angles. And that's a lot of influence. That it is. And I do I agree completely with you that there are so many super smart people within the accounting industry or accounting marketing industry um, in general. It's just amazing. All right. So we hear that you love to cook. What recipes are you loving right now? And please share the best wine pairing. Okay. Well, <laughs> Twist your arm. <laughs> <clears throat> I've had a recurring training engagement in the Bay Area for the last several years, the East Bay, actually. And uh, every chance I get um, while I'm in town doing that work, I go to Broderick's in Walnut Creek, and I indulge in their duck burger. You're thinking duck and burger, really, Art? And I'm saying, <laughs> oh, yeah, really. Now, this time of year, I've got a little bit more time to cook than I do in some of the more busy training times. So this is the time when I get to experiment in the kitchen a little bit more than usual. So um, I thought to myself, why can't I make a duck burger at home? I've never had one here in Milwaukee, so I don't know if they exist. I don't know if I can go talk to a chef about what they put in there. So I just had to do my best and guess. I looked at the menu at that restaurant I mentioned, looked at some of their key ingredients, and then I set off to find ground duck. Well, guess what? No one has ground duck. So I had Did to... Um, <laughs> I'm thinking a butcher was involved here. <laughs> So I called, the, I called the butcher at a small meat market, and I said, can you make me some ground duck patties? He said no. Uh, so I found another, but yes, I know. Uh, I know. Especially yes, in the Midwest. I mean, we're talking Wisconsin here. And I can say this because I live in Minnesota, and we do duck hunting. <laughs> um, so uh, I went to a second butcher. I asked the question, and the staff at the counter said they weren't sure. They were going to have to check with the owner and get back to me. Three days later, I got a call. They said they could do the ground duck. So as soon as I got that call, and I knew they were going to make me some ground duck, I really started getting going. Um, and, uh, of course, they can't just make one pack, all right? So we made a couple of pounds of ground duck, so I've had the opportunity to continue to refine my recipe. Um, but I will tell you that the wine pairing for the duck burger uh, is usually going to be a Sonoma Syrah. Uh, I've had uh, a lot of luck with that um, level of uh, kind of depth, and those two seem to work really well together. So stay tuned for more information about a duck burger recipe, possibly uh, showing up on my website as soon as I feel like it's just right. So are you getting close? Well, I'm getting as Close as I can without overindulging in duck. Ah, okay. It's relatively high in cholesterol, so yes. I'm trying to limit myself to <laughs> a duck burger every <laughs> other week. So maybe a few more weeks I'll be ready to go. But I, I've got a good supply of duck in the fridge right now. All right. <laughs> so now to the um, – I can't remember if you have one or two kids. One, right? And does he like duck, or has he not tried it yet? 
So Graham is almost five, and he has not tried the duck burger. Uh, what's been very challenging for my wife, Colleen, and I is that prior to him attending school with hot lunch, he was a much more adventurous eater. Uh, and yeah. now, you know, now he comes home and says, they put mustard on my hot dog at it. I, I had to give it back. I couldn't eat it. And that's just not what we raised this boy to be all about. We raised him to be an adventurous eater, a curious eater. And so I, I can't wait until the point where we can get that back into him. And I know he will love the duck burger. Yeah, it goes in spurts. So I have a 15-year-old, and she just started liking mustard this past year. But there are things where she doesn't like now, where she liked when she was younger. I'm like, Bella, you ate this previously. Now all of a sudden she doesn't like it. So it just kind of ebbs and flows, and it'll drive you nuts. I'm hoping that one day when she's in college or even in her 20s, it'll be like, sure, I'll go out to dinner with you and eat this, this, and this. Yes. So no advice for you. <laughs> Thank you, Don. All right. I, I look for I look forward to the roller coaster on very many fronts. Yes. Uh huh. All right. So my final question for you is: your favorite travel destination of all time, one you would return to every year if you could. Right. It's going to have to be a dual nation trip. Okay. <laughs> Had the pleasure of doing these before. And um, where I really have settled, and both Colleen and I have settled and done this many, many times, is a combination of the Italian countryside and the south coast of France. Mm. Give us 10 days there, and uh, we'll be in, in high heaven. Sounds very nice, and I take it it's just the two of you and no grand on this trip? <laughs> so far. <laughs> so far. Well, no, see, Dawn, you got, it. You got the vernacular wrong. So uh, 10 days in the Italian countryside in the south of France is called a vacation. Any, <laughs> any, any, uh, any journey where we bring Graham is usually called a trip. So just for those, uh, for those listening out there, and uh, uh, that's how we describe the two. I see. I see. Well, I will tell you this. I can give you this advice. Once they get older, I think Bella hit, like, middle school, and she was kind of cool and fun to start traveling with and so that's then when we started bringing her and it was not a trip it was still a vacation then okay hey i'm looking i'm looking forward to i'm looking forward to that pivot as well all right well that is it for my questions i really appreciate you being on today's podcast thank you so much don uh, i was a pleasure joining you i had fun and uh let's do it again Thanks for listening to the Ingenious Podcast. If you like this podcast, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen. Visit the show notes for this episode and all episodes at ingenuitymarketing.com forward slash podcast.